Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Uptech newsletter number 257. Recap on Twitter Spaces. It's Thursday, June 29th, and we're joined, hopefully later, by Greg Sanders to talk about CoinJoin pinning and V3 transaction relay. We have Robin Linus here to talk about sidechains and speculative consensus upgrades. Merch and Gloria to talk about policy and protecting network resources. We have five questions from the Stack Exchange, a BTC pay server 1.10.3 release, a bunch of lightning-related PRs. So let's go through some introductions and we'll jump into it. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs on Bitcoin stuff, and we recorded two great episodes that are coming out shortly at the Chaincode podcast. Excellent. Gloria? Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core, and I'm sponsored by Brink. Okay. Hey, Robin, who are you? Hi, I'm Robin. I work on ZeroSync. Um, we are applying zero-knowledge proofs to Bitcoin. Excellent. Well, I've shared a few tweets in the space so folks can follow along. We also have the website version uh, of the newsletter. If you care to pull it up, it's um, 2.57. And in since Greg may be joining us, I want to stall for him, and maybe we can go a little bit out of order. And Robin, we can talk about your news item first, which is speculatively using hope for consensus changes. And Robin, maybe to set the context a bit, it sounds like this is a similar idea to space chains and that there are BTC that are sent to some destination for purposes of being used on a side chain. But whereas in space chains, those BTC are burned and no longer spendable on the main chain. The idea with this someday peg idea is that coins aren't burned, but sent to a long timeout output in, in the example, I think it was 20 years lock time that would be spendable by anyone after that time lock, but there's an additional spending condition that could spend the coins before that time lock if you satisfy uh, a Bitcoin script fragment using opcodes with semantics that aren't currently defined in consensus. And the example given, I think, was a script that used a reserved opcode speculatively as a ZK proof opcode. Am I getting that right? And maybe you want to maybe fill in some of the holes there? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, first of all, I have to clarify, it's not only my idea. Um, I was hanging out with uh, Burak and Super Testnet, and uh, yeah, we were just talking about Bitcoin and joking about things. And uh, during that, Burak came up with the idea that we might use an opcode that doesn't yet exist or that doesn't exist yet. And um, yeah, the idea was based on uh, Ruben Thompson's uh, perpetual one-way pack, which as you described, um, basically just burns Bitcoin to um, mint some other coin, some sidechain coin. And um, yeah, people opposed it a lot. Nobody likes the idea of burning Bitcoins, apparently. And um, so we thought how to improve it. And um, yeah, the idea is that um, we could have someday a ZKP verifier that would allow us to do trustless two-way packs. And um, since we don't have that yet, we could just pretend that we already have it and make people use it even before it exists. 
And if people use it, then they also have an incentive to lobby for actually activating this soft fork that would be required. And the more people use it, the higher the incentive of the community to actually activate it. Well, the incentive for them to lobby for it, not necessarily for the community, because lost coins just increase the uh, scarcity of all other coins, right? Ah, true, yeah, but here the coins wouldn't get lost. Um, actually, um, yeah, they, they would be given to miners if um, the software would not get activated. So aren't you incentivizing, you're incentivizing the, the users of the coins on the side chain who could potentially redeem it to activate, but you're also simultaneously incentivizing miners then to, to not activate it because they could scramble for these coins? Or Well, actually... Uh, like, um, miners do have an incentive to activate it too, because of course they could just steal the coins, but the problem is every miner could steal the coins. And uh, if enough coins are locked and if they, if all time locks open at the same block height, then uh, miners would have an incentive forever to to overwrite that block and uh, to, yeah, to, to fork and uh, to give the coins to themselves. And that would create huge chaos. And it's kind of like an even better incentive for the community to actually activate it. it but I have more like... Sorry? Sorry. That, to me, uh, catching up to your, your thought process here, that sounds more like a very uh, dangerous precedent and... Um, yes maybe an an incentive for the community to change the outcome so that the miners will not be able to claim those funds. Yeah. To, to be absolutely upfront, I'm not very serious about this proposal. Um, I think it's very funny and I think it's worth exploring this idea and thinking about this idea. But neither Burak nor Supertestnet nor I are very convinced of this idea. We, we do see that it's very problematic and particularly from in particular from uh, the political perspective because the incentives of it are, are super strange. Yeah, I, I agree. I was reminded yesterday again how it's important to keep an open mind and look at things in two or three different ways before you uh, <laughs> dismiss them. The interesting idea here is that it's mostly a political solution, right? It's it's not a technical solution. The technical solution is basically postponed to some point in the future. And um, it's more like an incentive structure, I would say. And if it works out, I don't know. But there are incentives to do that. And uh, that's kind of interesting, I think. And the mechanism here is repurposing a reserved opcode for you know potentially yeah. for example that the zk proof uh repurposing that as a zk proof opcode um and i think we've talked a little bit recently about in recent um spaces here i think with yost and, and others about trying to preserve those reserved <laughs> Op codes uh, so that they're not used today and that, and that they can <laughs> yeah. be preserved for, for future use. And whereas this would be, I guess, you could in theory be doing something like this sooner than later. Yeah. I, 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 like, I would not be certain how to implement this actually because. Um, we would have to find consensus on some kind of ZKP verifier. And as far as I understand the industry, there is no like 
there is no verifier that you could just take off the shelf and you're good. Just the, it's not it's not the same situation as like when satoshi invented bitcoin that he knew well we have the signature schemes and they have been out there for years and we can just use them i think he just chose some of OpenSSL that he thought is reasonably good and i think we don't have that situation yet in uh, in the field of ckp so it wouldn't be easy to choose a particular verifier right now but we would have to choose one you, you, would you need to choose one before? Because really, all you need is the the, the which which opcode do you want to repurpose, and and then like the, the, I think in the example, there's just some sort of a hash, right? And so you, however mm-hmm. that would be implemented, could could be determined at a future date, right? Yeah, we thought so originally, but the more I thought about it, uh, the more I thought it's probably not true. Um, first of all. Um, like the question is how how specific do we want that opcode to be? Should it be a generic um, open uh, op zkp verify, or should it be only for a particular thing, which could be like a two-way pack or so? If we would say we want something very specific for only a particular two-way pack, then uh, it wouldn't be necessary to define all the details right now because we could figure them out later and just adapt them such that they fit our use case later on. But if we want to have a generic CKP verifier, then uh, yeah, we, we have to define the specifics of it up front before we can use it. Because otherwise, what we do will be incompatible with the CKP verifier. And sorry, you mentioned the program hash. Sorry? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Robin. Um, yeah, I don't want to talk too much. Like, uh, I'm happy if you give feedback in between, because I don't know if I'm making sense or not. <laughs> I was just curious if Smirch or Gloria had any comments or feedback on the proposal. I think that it's um, uh, the the game theory and incentive around what happens depending on how much money is uh, used with this upcode and um, how that might affect the dynamics of whether or not this is getting implemented. Uh, I there, there's a, a few too many open variables there for me to to. And my my first reaction is that I'm not very comfortable with the idea. <laughs> yeah, Dave? I'm not sure if I like it or if I hate it. <laughs> Dave, do you have a comment? I just wanted to maybe correct something that Mike said in the introduction, which was. Um, he said that if we define the opcode, like we made a consensus change to define the opcode, we could start using this thing right away. Um, I think maybe that's confusing two different things, which is one, if this was done, if people were willing to take this risk, they could start sending money to say a side chain that used this right away, but there's no way that I can think of that they would be able to withdraw money from that side chain in less than whatever the period of time was. So Linus suggested 20 years. There's just no way to allow withdrawal in less than 20 years, even if next year, we defined an op DKP verify opcode. So it's just kind of a, you're really committed to this if you're willing to take that risk. Well, you can always use um, atomic swaps if you find someone who wants to swap in. 
that's fair. But I'm just saying the, the set of the set of funds committed to the side chain, it's stuck there for 20 years. There's no way for that yes. pool to get any smaller in less than 20 years, even if we, as a community, change the consensus rules to support the feature that was being proposed. You're right, Dave. I, um, I miss. I, I guess I misunderstood that. I thought that there was sort of a conditional there that was uh, either the the zkp thing activates and you can withdraw before, or anybody can grab it after the time lock. So I may have misunderstood that. I guess in theory it would be possible to implement it such um, that you can use it right away as soon as it gets activated. But I guess that would require a hard fork and not a soft fork. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I spent I spent a fair amount of time while writing this trying to think of a way around that, which I think I think it would be more appealing if there was a way to pull those funds back into Bitcoin early. But I just couldn't see of a way to do that with just a software. Yeah, with a software, I think it's impossible. But with a hardware, it should be possible. You just need like the opposite of an op-nop. You need something that currently fails, and then after the hard fork, it succeeds. Then it would be possible. No argument for me. Merch, anything else before we move on? Uh, I'll, I'll just play the, the um, grouchy old man here and say, if you're banking your money on hard forking to get new, new speculative features. <laughs> I think you you better be ready to have signed them off. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we just tried to be better than burning, right? <laughs> so this is like a slight improvement over burning your BTC. I, I kind of had a thought about using this as a general speculation on consensus changes i think there's like two scenarios that are like my absolute worst nightmare one of which is like two people create conflicting uh op codes for example and then you put money mm -hmm. into that and then suddenly it's like okay now we have to decide whose money to burn um and that's not a, that's not something that i think we can that makes me very uncomfortable, as Merch said. And, and the other one is it's kind of like a like almost a negative bug bounty, where if you're in a situation where you found like a heinous bug that would allow you to steal anyone's money uh, that used this op code, you're almost like disincentivized to reveal that because like what what you really want is for the software to happen so that you now get all that money. Um, which is already locked up for you conveniently. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm simplifying it too much or like thinking the worst case, but that's kind of my grumpy old man, like uh, thoughts about this. Um, but, you know, maybe we can, maybe this, I, I, I interpret a lot of things sometimes as just like a general push for like, hey, we really need to figure out how we get rough consensus and like discuss software proposals. So I, I think it's it's good for for that kind of thought provoking kind of thing. Anyway, Robin, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to stay on and comment on the rest of the newsletter. Otherwise, if you have other things to do, you're free to drop. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think we'll go back 
to the first item of the newsletter, and I, I, I'm hoping between Merch, Gloria, maybe Harding, and myself, we can we can go through this. Um, luckily, the author of the V3 transaction relay rules proposal is here to help. Maybe I can lob a softball to to Merch here to start this discussion, which is the discussion of preventing coin join pinning with V3 transaction relay which is a mailing list post that Greg Sanders sent to the Bitcoin dev mailing list. Uh, Merch, I suspect you can handle this one. Um, maybe we can explain how a participant in a collaborative coin join transaction could today prevent that coin join transaction from confirming. And then we, after that, we can get into like what part of the V3 transaction relay proposal assists in the re- remediation of that kind of attack. Uh, sure, I can try to give it a stab, but uh, Greg just told me that he'd be here, so I didn't read much up on it. <laughs> anyway, uh, the um, the general problem here is that when multiple parties are trying to build a transaction together, and there's more than one contributor that submits UTXOs to it, they can, of course, always build more transactions that also uses the same UTXO. And while the coordination for the coin join is ongoing where they first must tell each other what inputs they're using somebody builds a probably psbt and uh, maybe some people are starting to sign it they could still submit a second transaction that spends the same utxo and um depending on whether or not replaceability has been uh set on that second transaction, it might prevent the coin join transaction after it's signed to get accepted to mempools because there is already a conflicting transaction in the mempools. So um, I think the, uh, the there's the obvious case where that transaction is just there and there's a conflict and everybody knows that the coin join transaction was not accepted to mempools because of the conflict, but there is also a way in which that can be done that it's not, um, so if, sorry, if the other CoinJoin participants have already submitted the transaction to their own mempools and the, the transaction by the attacker is already submitted to many other mempools on the network, then they might come into a situation where none of the two transactions can replace the other one and the other participants in the conjoin don't realize that there is a competing transaction in other people's mempools uh, and they could get stuck and uh, be waiting for a long time. I think uh, Dave or Gloria, uh, did I get that roughly right? Thank All right. <laughs> okay, so um, the idea here is now as a solution you could just stage the funds just uh, in quotes even the original source material because if the funds are already sent to um, an address or i should say an output that is controlled by all participants of the coin join then of course the funds cannot be uh, double spent because they're already controlled by the coin joining participants and um, the idea is here each participant in order to to sort of sign up for the coin join first sends the funds to the coin join conglomerate and then when the funds are confirmed they only try to perform the coin join um i 
and then of course there there's a fallback path when it times out uh, it goes back to the um participant pretty much like how when we open a channel or um an htlc we have the two paths where where we get to reclaim our funds after times out okay merch that makes sense to me i i think the part that that i didn't understand in reading through this is where where does v3 come in in any of that i understand that there's this staging step that will help mitigate the pinning i'm unsure where the the v3 part comes in I think it's because, wow, maybe I shouldn't have unmuted my mic. But my understanding was that it forces, if the staging transaction is V3, then it forces the next transaction to be V3 if it's still unconfirmed. But then I I was wondering if all the staging transactions are separate transactions or if that's all one transaction. Um, but yeah, this, this I, that's my understanding that you have, like you're doing the forced inherited signaling, but I don't know. So as I understood the proposal, all the staging transactions are separate transactions. Uh, they're all depositing to the same scripts basically, but they're all separate transactions. Uh, and they need to be confirmed before the coin join starts. So that was actually going to be also my question for Greg when he was here was, does this actually require V3? Because it seems to me like this works without V3. Uh, and I guess the downside of this proposal is this is just more heavy on the chain than existing coin joints. Uh, and it's especially, I think... Uh, I don't want to say problematic, but it's especially heavy if we consider what we want for coin joins, which is we want them to be using um, in the future if we have uh, signature aggregation, cross-input signature aggregation. Uh, it's going to look especially heavy if we have to go through this process to avoid uh, pinning of coin joins. So I, I personally didn't see this as a really great solution, but it is a solution if pinning of coin joins is becoming a major problem. Especially if we consider that coin joins might be performed in order to increase uh, privacy by m mixing up clusters between multiple wallets, then having this um, step in between where everybody pays to the same script before is such a huge fingerprint that it at least would make that case completely absurd. Yeah, I think um, looking at Greg's proposal, he covered both the cases of what we currently have is uh, implemented by um, Join Market, where the coin joins are between a small group of peers, and the cases that we have like in Wasabi and Whirlpool, where the coin joins are kind of coordinated by a central coordinator. Uh, and so in the central coordinated coin joins, uh, I think his proposal is a lot more efficient and useful. Um, but again, like Merce said, there's a fingerprinting vector there that I, I don't know. I, I guess it, I think it exists currently with coin joins. Like they look like they kind of look like there might be consolidation uh, transactions, maybe. But I think they're pretty on-chain fingerprintable right now. Actually, um, I, I realize where I'm going wrong with this. Uh, so. 
I think the way John Market and Wasabi and other bigger conjoin proposals work is that it's fairly obvious that a conjoin is happening, but the outputs gain privacy because they become unassignable to the original uh, entrance of the conjoin. So you're you're creating an anonymity set by saying, yeah, sure, we all paid into this pot, but now you can't tell anymore whose output each one was when they came out of the coin join. And therefore, I think maybe the fingerprint and going into the coin join is not that bad because people are already sort of pretty open about being in the coin join, but uh, you still get the, the benefits of the outcome. I have, a, I have a question. It's a really dumb question. Is 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 anyone can pay used in this like in this regime because i've I've just noticed that it's it's a quote text of circling back to my anyone can pay point comma something 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 uh not so far as i know okay okay i have no idea should we wrap it up merch all right well Next item from the newsletter continues Optech series on transaction relay and mempool policy titled Waiting for Confirmation. In a previous post, we outlined some considerations around using policy to protect a node's resources. And in this post, we're talking about protecting network resources. So maybe to start, Gloria or Merch, whoever feels comfortable, maybe we can outline some examples of what are Bitcoin's network resources in the way that we're thinking about it in this post. Well, uh, how about I just start because I uh, I, I wrote most of this. Um, so some of the network resources that we're trying to protect in the Bitcoin network are, of course, just the overall blockchain size, the UTXO set as a um, representative of the current state of the network. And um, we want to protect the upgrade hooks. So we, we have a bunch of mechanisms still in place that are currently allowed by consensus to be used, but in policy uh, protected in order to to have a smooth upgrade path for later soft forks and and protocol changes so uh, those are the three that that come to mind and then merch i think we we outlined in the protecting of the individual node resources some examples of how those particular resources are are protected and so i guess in this case how are we protecting those three different kind of resources that you've outlined yeah. Um, so, sorry, I'm 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 blanking pretty hard right now. <laughs> Gloria, do you want to jump in? Or? Yeah. It, I mean, the general theme is like, yeah, we have standardized rules to kind of just stop things or put a price on things that we consider um, taking up various network resources. I think. Um, one of the best examples in here is about adding arbitrary data into the blockchain um, and how, you know, it, the blockchain is like this highly replicated perpetual storage that you can get tens of thousands of people to store forever for you. Um, and so, you know, of course, there's going to be demand for that. 
Um, and then I think recently there's been kind of lots of, uh, which generally in Bitcoin, I think we have a kind of a culture of like, oh yeah, protect network resources, keep ETXO set small, keep blockchain size small so that new nodes can bootstrap and, you know, it, we keep the cost of running a node small and it's feasible to do it on a Raspberry Pi, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, with people, you know, putting JPEGs or putting any kind of arbitrary data um, into their transactions, people feel that that needs to be stopped. Um, like they're like, oh yeah, maybe like add a rule to, you know, prevent quote unquote arbitrary, useless, wasteful data in transactions um, because we, you know, we have lots of standardist rules right now that are already censoring quote unquote. Um, and my take on that is, you know, as, as protocol developers, I don't think there, we have a place in saying like, what is legitimate payment and what is legitimate data to stuff into the blockchain and what is like wasteful or, you know, not real payments or, you know, I, I think that goes against kind of the whole philosophy of Bitcoin. Um, but so, for example, this idea of adding new, like arbitrary, pushing arbitrary data on chain, there are various costs associated with that. So I think, again, the best example in here, I think, is talking about um, putting it into a bare multisig versus putting it into an op return. I think the introduction of op return, like a single op return, quote unquote, null data or data carrier output was made standard. Um as kind of a way where it's like, okay, you know, you know, we're, we're not going to tell you that this arbitrary data is useful or not useful or meaningful or not meaningful. Um, but if you're going to do it, put it in an op return so that we don't have to put it in the UTXO set, for example. Um, so I think that's the best one that I would point to within the article. March has something to say, so I'll hand the mic back to you. Yeah, so I, I think people realize that it is impossible to prevent people from uh, publishing data on the blockchain. And as Gloria already uh, mentioned, um, it is very attractive to have at least a few small pieces of data in, in the blockchain where it will essentially live forever. And when you cannot prevent people from doing that, we can at least maybe encourage some best practices where we um, get people if they need to do it, to do it in a way that it doesn't pollute the UTXO set, doesn't um, um, at least doesn't live in this this piece of state that we have to um, keep around forever because we use it to validate transactions, to validate blocks. Um, so yeah, we we introduced up return outputs uh, to basically have a path to cater to this need without encouraging the worse ways of doing that. And so in, in a way, the, the resurgence of uh, the stamps recently is really unfortunate because bare multisig was essentially completely unused. And uh, when when people then say, oh yeah, we, we do actively want to publish to the UTXO set rather than just a blockchain. So people have to keep it forever in the active, data rather than than just a blockchain that that sounds uh, a little uh counter to to how we would like people to behave on the network um given that 
we have this huge global state. It's it's essentially like if you have a class of students and you're making every student correct every other student's homework, um, you're you're probably gonna get a few people that are um, very stringent about it and find every mistake but it's also a lot of replicated work and that's what we're doing with the blockchain every single node is looking at every other single node's submissions to the network so we we want to keep that small in order to scale up we we embody a lot of the um goals for our network in in its um in the way the network is constructed and the peer-to-peer nature of it, if we allow people to to just uh, waste network resources, we will not be able to run nodes at home easily. We will um, make it more expensive and less accessible. We will reduce the number of uh, entities that need to be um, convinced, coerced, or blocked to to get undue influence on the network. So yeah, philosophically, we want the cost of running a node to be as small as possible so that we get a um, widespread um, diverse set of node operators so that there's a lot of people that check each other's homework. And um, yeah, so the, the, the post here is mostly about that, how we uh, can use policy in the of consensus rules to um, encourage best practices to to encourage social behavior where people maybe take themselves back a little bit in order for for the whole network to be able to exist in its current form to to um, keep consensus uh, sorry censorship resistance and um, yeah our uh, leaderless configuration of the network at large. Gloria, any further comments before we wrap up this section? Yeah, the the biggest theme I wanted to get across was essentially like we have no business telling people, like we have no business censoring transactions on the basis of use case, um, but on the basis of what network resources we're trying to protect and are critical to like all of these ideological goals uh, we have. Like I think, like policies. It is a great way to do that. And I think one thing that we didn't mention actually in any of these posts was sometimes policy is like a way to add a rule to the network that really should be consensus. Um, but it looks like Harding has a has his hand raised. So I, I kind of want to disagree with Gloria on this. And I'm, I'm sorry, Gloria, but um, I think maybe we do have a good reason to uh make decisions based on use case so as a node operator i'm willing to serve data and even if the government doesn't want me to serve that data in order to help protect other people's ability to use free money which is what i think of bitcoin as as free as in the sense of freedom money on the other hand i don't necessarily I'm not necessarily willing to run a node and to put my freedom at risk if I disagree with the government in order to serve other people's 
data, especially that data is, let's say, breaking copyright law, or let's say that data is child pornography. Uh, and that's the kind of arbitrary data that some people want to store in the blockchain. Now, other people want to store other sorts of arbitrary data. For example, we had use on here a few weeks ago talking about using the annex to store data related to Bitcoin transactions, which Again, I'd be fine with that as a node operator, but as a node operator, I don't necessarily want to store people's uh, arbitrary data that isn't related to money. And so I think there is a reason to think of use cases here in the sense that we could lose node operators if those node operators felt like their goodwill is being abused. So that's just... I just wanted to put that out there as a as a take. Yes, I, sorry. What I meant by we is like as protocol developers. I don't think that if if you're writing like let, let let's start with like consensus rules, right? I don't think it would be appropriate to have consensus rules that you know as devs we like impose on people. For, I, I mean, okay, sorry. How do I say this? Yeah, like at the protocol level. I, I don't think we should police based on use case at the node operator level. I think, yeah, it's totally an individual decision. Like if, if you want to change your node to like ban anything you think looks like a JPEG or, you know, any use case that you particularly dislike, I think that's like totally, that, that was what the last post was about was like policy as an individual choice. Um, but I, I don't know that it makes sense to, say like oh this jpeg okay something like child pornography is, is very like black and white but the types of decisions that are typically made by financial institutions that police who gets to use money and who doesn't i mean this is kind of how, what we think about it in, in bitcoin right the types of decisions that they make are not really ones that i think are um suitable for what we're trying to do here if that makes sense so like difference between uh, we as a protocol developer making decisions and we as individual node operators making decisions. Uh, I see somebody else wants to talk, so I'll just go really quickly and just say, I don't think we necessarily have the tools to block the things that I would want to block. I say child pornography. I don't think we have the tools to block that at the consensus level. And so as protocol developers, we just, we can't really spend a lot of time thinking about that because we just don't have the tools. But if we had the tools, I think it would be very easy to get support to block that. So anyway, I'm finished. Thank you, Gloria. We have a speaker request from user Oflow. Go ahead. Hey. Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I actually agree with Gloria and lots of love and lots of respect to you, Gloria. Appreciate what you're doing. Um, I like to look at it similar to a dollar bill. Obviously, this is a bad example, but it's perfect for this situation. Anyone can have a dollar bill and choose to write over it and, you know, put anything on it. Obviously, some dollar bills that might be written on or might have beautiful art um, subjectively on it. But at the end of the day, it's a dollar bill is fungible. You're able to go and spend it. So that's the way I, I would look at it. Um, once you start telling people that they can't um, spend their dollar because it has a smiley face on it, that fundamentally messes with Bitcoin. That's what I think. Um, Thanks for that comment. Uh, Gloria or Merch, anything, anything else you'd like to say before we tease the next uh, post in the segment and move on. 
Yeah, I, w I wanted to sort of maybe have a comment on <laughs> a, a personal opinion on the Inquisition and, oh, sorry, Inquisition. What is it? Uh, the, the pictures that we, we've been... Inscriptions? Thank you. Uh, it's been a very long week. We have the Lightning Summit in New York this week, and uh, I've been talking to people all day, every day, and sorry, my brain's just fried. Um so uh, with, with the inscriptions that we've been seeing on the network, I think it's totally fair that we ex we focus on Bitcoin being for the uh, trying to be the uh, digital currency of the Internet for being a uh, attempt at creating a global currency. And we don't really need to cater to every single use case. I think uh, up returns, for example, being introduced as a means to make sure that there is a way for people to publish um, data, a small amount of data, um, without having too many consequences for other network resources is a good means of um, preventing it to happen in a worst case uh, or, or trying to mitigate because we cannot prevent. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking that um, I am completely unconvinced that having a platform to do BRC20 tokens is a good thing. I don't think that it serves our use case of having a um, to, to achieve a global currency and um, so the, the harsh truth, though, is it's really hard to, to block these sort of proposals in an effective way uh, because we can sure block this incantation with which the data is pu pushed to the blockchain, but then they'll just come up with another one. And then we're, we're just going to get into an arms race, uh, a game of whack-a-mole where um, you just block specific uses and then and then eventually we come to a point where you just cannot have an open scripting system and uh where where people can have maybe brilliant new ideas of how we can build a second layer protocol to to have um a scaling technology with which we can get the the currency of the internet use case um better facilitated so we, we do want to have this open scripting system. We do not want to play whack-a-mole. Whack so what can we really do as protocol developers to uh, curb this use case? Well, one thing we can do is to protect the growth of the blockchain and to basically have everybody grow their adoption against this very fixed limit and just have... Uh, use cases price each other out and hopefully that makes the use case of currency uh, survive because um, money has a very high density of value for low amount of data and hopefully stuff like writing a series of 8-bit graphics to the network does not have the same value density but yeah I, I see a few comments um, Maybe Robin? Uh, you mostly said all the things that I just wanted to say. Like, first of all, it's impossible to permit it. And second, uh, the only way to really prevent it is to price these use cases out, out with higher value use cases. 
Um, the only thing I wanted to add is that I think the best way to do that is to increase the network effects, and which is in the end the number of users. And I personally see no way to friction to onboard users in a frictionless way. Um, other than adding side chains like BIP300 and stuff like that. I think that's the best solution to add enough people so that the monetary use cases become so valuable that they price out all the inscription things. Oflo? Yeah, so I, I like to look at Bitcoin for what it's functioning as and I see it as a settlement layer, and I like to compare it to one of the biggest settlement layers that we have in the world today, which is Fedwire. And yes, Fedwire is settling trillions of dollars per day, and Bitcoin literally can do that. The TPS, there is literally a small difference in TPS, and I agree with Robin in that regard. Nice to see you here. Um, that essentially the more adoption that we bring to Bitcoin, essentially the more funds that get settled on that settlement layer and pricing out arbitrary data is the, the way to go about it instead of specifically um, trying to you know, change the protocol in a way where we might specifically damage it or try and limit it from a consensus level because what's being done is not out of consensus, it's literally in consensus. And even if we look back at Satoshi, Satoshi literally put arbitrary data into Bitcoin. Not that what Satoshi does is the defining factor of Bitcoin, but specifically it has been done before and it's in the history of Bitcoin to do it. We have another speaker request here. From Bitcoin Seco. Bitcoin yeah, yeah, hey guys. I got a question for Gloria. Um, you mentioned that to protect the network, uh, we need to introduce uh, policies. So, what sort of policies are we talking about? Would there be like a, a dust limit on, um, on the transaction? Um, or what exactly can we, can we look forward to when you say policy, policy changes to curb uh, uh, unwanted use of, uh, of the network? Oh, yeah, I was mostly uh, referring to current policy, such as, um, yeah, exactly, like the like the dust limit. So, for example, let's imagine there was no policy and you could broadcast a maximum consensus, like block size transaction that just creates as many zero value UTXOs as you can fit Um and that costs nothing. And you just like do that over and over and you blow up the UTXO set. Um, so, you know, dust limits say, yo, there's a, there's a minimum value on, on trans, on, uh, sorry, what's the, what's the name? And value on outputs <laughs> that you need to put on, on transactions in order for them to relay, for example. Um, Merch has a hand raise. Do you want to? Yeah, I was going to mention we have a link in the newsletter that links to a gist by Instagibs where he goes over the policy, policy zoo. And what he goes into is um, he gives a list of all the policies that we currently have uh, active on the network and he categorizes them as in what motivations they have. So he looks at, is this to protect individual nodes against dust attacks? Is this for security where um, 
transactions that that use certain uh, that have certain properties can mess with um, with the network for no good reason. Uh, is this to protect upgrade hooks or um, to? Uh, anyway, so there, there's a link um, in in there that you can look at for for an overview of the current policies. And in general, <clears throat> I think we choose to use policies either when we cannot introduce a consensus rule because potentially there could exist transactions that were pre-signed for which the keys were destroyed that rely on being able to be uh, committed into blocks eventually at, I don't know, 20 years later. And if we now um, forbid new forbid upcodes that were live at some point in the network, we would prevent them from ever confirming their transaction. So we we cannot prevent people from, from using previously acceptable upcodes, but we can discourage their use on the network because, for example, um, they are really costly to validate for nodes or uh, they, they just are huge in the... Um, in the UTXO set, like bare multisig, for example. I, I see there is more speakers again. Uh, I have Robin? a follow-up question, sorry, if you don't mind. Um, yes, please. Sorry. How do you, how do you uh, how do you implement these policies? Is it like uh, for consensus? Obviously, you either need the, the miners on board or the the nodes on board. So, how does the policy get implemented? Is it just the uh, the devs just um, um, just vote on it and then just uh, uh, release it in the like a like an update. Um, well, sorry, go? Okay, so I think policy changes relatively infrequently, um, but the process is not just the devs decide on something and then push it. Um, it toshish, um, and it. I think typically the process is like you post to the mailing list, you air it out, you talk to any type, any application that might possibly be using this field. So, for example, if I'm trying to, you know, ascribe value in policy to version number three, for example, I will go and see if anybody else is using that. Um, and if somebody is, then I don't want to invalidate their thing, so I'm not going to propose that but yeah you like socialize it as best you can you you know and then you propose it and then you can put it behind a flag i don't know um but yeah it's kind of in the middle it's not like you need all the miners to be on board if you were to add a, a policy that causes them to lose money i think they would probably hopefully say something and say no i don't want to run this um but yeah it's something in between just pushing it and getting everybody on board Robin? Um, I just want to ask, there is no policy to prevent inscriptions, right? We can only make it more expensive and more complicated for developers, but we cannot really have any kind of effective policy that would really prevent inscriptions, right? I mean, we could, for example, reduce the acceptable size of input uh, scripts. We could, um, but, you know, uh, Again, we, we do want to be able to have a, a flexible scripting system. We, we afford that to ourselves. And putting in arbitrary limits on things may prevent us from using it in other ways later. So really stamping down on 
all of those um, errant block space demand increasers uh, feel, feels like uh, potentially a problem for the future. It feels like something that's in witness data. Oh, maybe this is like a hot take, but it feels like something in witness data and or something that is an op return where you don't store it perpetually and you might be able to throw it away um, and you don't have to demand everyone download it when they bootstrap or, you, you know, like stuff like that is almost like would very much prefer people using that if they're going to do it. I guess this is like my whole point is like if it's a choice between stuffing it into a bare multi-sig and stuffing it into witness data, I think it's pretty clear from the perspective of node resources which one we should prefer. Oh, Flo, do you have another comment? Yeah, uh, this is actually directed towards Gloria. Um, what do you specifically think about upgrading Bitcoin script to basically to simplicity and what type of effects do you think that would have on Bitcoin adversely or positively, which the positives are probably more obvious than the negatives, so more emphasis on the negatives. Uh, I think I am vastly less qualified to answer this than someone like Merger Dave Harding. So is it okay if I pass it on to them instead? Sure. So um, I think that simplicity is an interesting way of introducing a lot more scripting flexibility that is um, much easier to prove correct and to um, to also program in than we have with our current script system. The current script system is fairly arcane, has has some weird behaviors. Um, I think it's getting a lot better already with the introduction of Miniscript because that makes it much easier for humans to reason about and to, to uh, express exactly the conditions that they want to encode. Uh, with simplicity, that would be supercharged because simplicity would be a much more powerful uh, language, yet um, we would be... Um, sorry. Um, we uh, we would be able to to formally verify and what what exactly the outcomes of a simplicity simplicity script could be my understanding is that we would be introducing that as essentially a new version of script for uh tap leaves so um it could be soft forked in it would be um, fairly easy to do so. We could have very strong guarantees about what you can do with it. And I would hope that we would essentially be able to write cooler smart contracts for how we use our digital e-cash. But the danger and downsides might include that it also becomes a lot easier and more powerful to to do fancy altcoins on top of Bitcoin or, um, yeah. So what I really would not like to see Bitcoin become is yet another altcoin casino like Ethereum, where people are just um, creating a new shitcoin by the hour that gets traded back and forth. I do see some use for, um, say, colored coins like stable coins where 
people need to express value in their local currencies and uh, perhaps do not have the stomach to to deal with the current volatility of bitcoin but yeah um the the danger of having a more powerful scripting system would mean that we also invite the the defi space to build more on top of bitcoin and i i sometimes wonder whether that's something we want or not Robin, maybe one last comment and we can move on to the stack exchange. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, Paul Stark's pitch is always that if we had sidechains, then we could kill all altcoins and simplicity would enable sidechains because it would enable two-way packs. But do we want that? <laughs> because even then, the sidechains will increase, increase traffic just to perpetuate the existence of the sidechain on, um, on Bitcoin. We will have more use cases that compete with our use of bitcoin as as a currency system does i it is hard for me to assess whether the introduction of broadside chain capabilities is gonna have a beneficial um outcome for for bitcoin and on the other hand i think that for example liquid introduced a lot of ways of how you could have um currencies or tokens native assets on on liquid and i've seen very little uptake of that now people might say that that is uh, due to the performance of liquid marketing or something but I, I i just don't see it's not obvious to me that that is an outright benefit to bitcoin but please feel free to push back one more time on me um well, the best argument I heard why people are not doing much uh, shitcoin casino things on Liquid is uh, that Bitcoiners just are not that much into gambling. But yeah, this is a different discussion. My, my, my entire point was that sidechains in general, they can uh, kill all, uh, all shitcoin narratives because there cannot be any new shitcoin narrative that could promise something that you could not do as a Bitcoin sidechain. And I think that that is a good thing in general. All right, perhaps this is a good opportunity to move along the newsletter. Um, I think we had some good discussion there. People like talking about policy and people like asking Gloria questions. So Gloria, thank you for being here. Uh, next section of the newsletter is selected Q&A from the Bitcoin Stack Exchange. So once a month, we pick out some interesting questions from the Stack Exchange and go through those. And this month we have five of them. The first one is, why do Bitcoin nodes accept blocks that have so many excluded transactions? And maybe a bit of background to this question is this user, Comstark, who asked the question, is referencing a metric called block health, which I think is provided um, on the mempool.space website as a um, sort of tool to see if the block that came in matches what a particular node expected that block to contain in terms of transactions. So mempool.space has some metrics around this, that they evaluate blocks against what they expected, what their mempool expected. And there's also uh, an additional tool provided by um, 0xb10c, called miningpool.observer that does something similar that shows how many transactions were missing 
or extra transactions that were included in a block compared to what that node or series of nodes thought were going to be in that block. And so the question here is, if there's blocks that are being mined that don't include certain transactions that were expected to be there, why wouldn't we just block uh, or, or I guess not accept that block from that mining pool or that, that miner because maybe they're um, censoring transactions. And so Peter Willa answered this question, pointing out that essentially the, the variance in different nodes mempools related to transaction propagation um, kind of makes it such that you can't really be sure that uh, a mining pool or a miner is censoring transactions. Um, Merch, I see your hand up. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, th I think one thing that's interesting to point out here is that we didn't really have good tools to watch uh, the difference between block templates, expected block templates, and the actual blocks being published on the network. I know, of course, OXB10C has had the uh, mining pool observer for a while already, but uh, with the advent of it being added to mempool.space, it just became a lot more visible. So I think it's funny how uh, the visibility of metrics like this pushes curiosity of people on why we're not able to, to prevent that. Um, I see Harding is, uh, one, wants to chime in. I just want to quickly disagree with Merch. Uh, I think we do have the tools for that. If you enable debugging for compact blocks on Bitcoin Core, it'll tell you uh, what it what it got from the nodes uh, for on high bandwidth nodes. So I'm just looking at my debugging comp uh, by debugging ass. By debugging log right now. And so I have a recent block here. It says successfully reconstructed block, blah, 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 with one transaction pre filled. So that's what we received from the high bandwidth here 3,214 transactions from the mempool, including at least zero from the extra pool, and then 15 transactions requested. So my node requested 15 transactions that it didn't have from that block when it received. So I just wanted to point out that we did have that tool, uh, but Merch is right that these websites are making it more accessible to regular users. Well, we don't have the logging to see if something was missing. So we don't like regularly build block templates, for example, and then like check to see what was missing in the actual block. That's all right. I'm just being oh. a contrarian, I guess. <laughs> Although I also just uh, talked to some people yesterday and we talked about how that would be a useful thing to to keep track of in order to, for example, assess the quality of our mempool to do fee rate estimation. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but getting back to my earlier point, um, so on the one hand, I think it's funny how the curiosity is driven by just making this publicly visible. Thank you for Harding for correcting that we couldn't uh, get it as uh, in other ways previously. But the the other thing is um, transaction relay on the network is a best effort thing. So we can never tell whether other nodes actually had received the transaction before. Uh, unless we gave it to them directly ourselves. 
Um, and so if they don't include that transaction, it might have been benign reasons. They just restarted their node. They didn't, they weren't online when this transaction made the rounds or, or things like that. So um, if we required other nodes to be homogenous with our mempool, we would essentially have a consensus protocol we had to run on the content of the mempool rather than the blocks being published being our consensus mechanism with which we agree what the order of transactions on the network is. So um, it, it's just completely impractical that we have agreement on the content of mempools and therefore we cannot expect people to have the same block templates. I think Oflo, what's up? Um, question, why don't we have something like Dandelion in, in Bitcoin? Uh-huh, that's a good question. So um, precisely the reason for Dandelion was that it introduced some new DOS vectors because when you um, pretend to everybody else that you haven't seen a transaction yet, um, let's say we have 10 peers and eight of them submit the same transaction to us via Dandelion, we have to pretend to each of the other ones that we haven't seen it yet until we see it on the open network. So we essentially get a uh, situation in which we have to keep up to a complete mempool for every one of our peers that we pretend is uh, not known to everyone else. So we, we basically get a function or we, we open a pathway for other nodes to write to our memory directly. And and there, there were this and a few other issues, how it could turn into a DOS vector that could not be mitigated by discussions on how to improve the protocol. I think that there is currently work by Vasil Dimov on a single shot submission to a Tor node. Um, the idea here is if you want to submit a transaction to the network, instead of giving it to your peers and potentially revealing to the peers that you're the source of the transaction, because the, you're the first one that tells them about it, you would connect to a random node on the Tor network, only give the transaction to that node uh, with a fresh connection to the Tor network, and then disconnect from the Tor network again. And then hope to see the transaction on the open network after as a con way to confirm that it has been successfully broadcast. And um, that way we could get sort of a single hop down the line where we just make a very private first connection. And uh, a lot of the issues around uh, when to submit it to the broader network to keep separate mempools for for each of your peers for the dandelion transactions versus regular transactions, they don't apply to this very simple approach. Next question from the Stack Exchange was, why does everyone say that soft forks restrict the existing rule set? And in looking at more details of the, the motivation for this question, it, it seems that this person is seeing that seemingly all uh you, you can still spend in the quote-unquote old way even after a soft fork so what exactly is being restricted and so peter willa answered this question and provided the examples of the taproot and segwit requirements that that were added and i think that the the takeaway here is that 
um, it, it is restricting the rules and making tighter rules, but it's not restricting common types of, of transactions or spends or outputs. It's restricting ideally something, uh, some format of a transaction that, that hasn't been used or has been used sparingly so that it has to adhere to the new rules. Go ahead, Merch. I think this ties very nicely into our uh, waiting for confirmation series post today, because um, this is an upgrade hook that is being used. We had essentially already put a fence around uh, native SegWit transactions uh, of higher versions. So we've had V0 native SegWit for a while since uh, SegWit came out, but uh, version one for uh, is it 15 or 16? I think 16. Uh, are consensus valid and unencumbered by rules, but uh, policy disabled. So we do allow sending to outputs that use the new versions, but we prevent inputs from uh, using the new versions. So the restriction that we add here is instead of having no rules applied to version one native SegWit output, uh, inputs, we now expect that they fulfill the template of taproot transactions. And that is a restriction from no encumberment to only the rules specified in taproot. And that's how we get the um, restriction of rules here. Next question from the Stack Exchange is, why is the default LN channel limit set to 16777215 sats? And we have uh, Wojciech who explained the, the history around that limit and then the change to Wumbo channels at some point and also linked to our Optex large channel topic for more information, which includes... Uh, a quote from uh, Rusty saying that uh, people are going to lose money using this new technology and he would sleep better if he could pay you back with a, a beer or coffee with the amount um, that, that was potentially lost with this new protocol. Um, and that was an early quote of his. And, and I think since then, uh, it was 2018 allowed these Wumbo larger size channel sizes um, and I thought that was interesting that uh, we, we got a topic reference from the Stack Exchange. Merch? Yeah, it's, it's funny um, how point, uh, 42 millibitcoin is the cost of a beer, though. Uh, maybe not anymore. Yeah, not quite. I mean, I mean it's like $1,200. <laughs> but um, yeah, essentially, um, channels or lightning is fairly complicated. It's it's extremely simple if you think about what the, the core concept is and uh, it only uses the idea that you can spend an output in two different ways, either locked by a hash or locked by a time. And uh, then on the other hand, uh, well, we have the lightning summit here this week and we had uh, 30 or so uh, lightning developers yesterday at our New York bit devs and They've been working, people have been working on Lightning for eight years. This um, simple idea and just trying to work out all the engineering challenges around that is um, keeping about 40, 50 people full-time occupied, working on three, four, maybe five uh, Lightning implementations now. So 
the foresight of Rusty to say, you know what, people are going to use this before it's ready, and um, let's limit how much funds are on the line when people are recklessly uh, storming the network. It seems pretty yeah, in, uh, foresightful at this point. Next question from the Stack Exchange is, why does Bitcoin Core use ancestor score instead of just ancestor fee rate to select transactions? And I know we talked about this briefly in our waiting for confirmation series a few weeks ago on incentives. Um, Gloria, how would you frame Suhas's answer to the question? He seems uh, to outline that it's a performance optimization. Ooh, um, so Ancestor score, sorry, I didn't prepare, but Ancestor score is the minimum of your Ancestor fee rate and your own fee rate. So uh, you can imagine a CPFP, you're bumping your ancestor. So your ancestor score is lower than your, sorry, your ancestor fee rate is going to be your, is going to be, sorry, lower than your own fee rate because you're you're fee bumping your ancestors. Um, Whereas you can also imagine situations where, I don't know, you're sending, you're spending your change output um, from a payment that was pretty urgent, but you know this this new payment using your change output is not as urgent. So your child, the child transaction actually has a lower fee rate than the parent transaction. Um, so if it, in in mining, like there's no point. It, it, like if you look at ancestor fee rate alone, um, it it doesn't make sense in that case. But anyway, so we could still use ancestor fee rate. Um, as the kind of first sort, like where you take the highest ancestor fee rate and then you're like, you take that one and then you, you start adding those to the block and then updating things as you go. Um, but that's less efficient than using ancestor score, which is the minimum because you'll catch things like the child having a lower fee rate um, sooner. That, that, that's my... I, I can go and read Suhas's <laughs> answer, but okay, maybe Merch has. <laughs> um, there's there's another um, thing here that is a little more subtle. So, in a straight line of transactions where there's uh, own or let's say when when one transaction has a tree of ancestors that is. Um, more complicated, for example, a diamond or just two parents that both have a, let's say you're spending from two CPFPs, and then it is possible if they have overlapping ancestry for your own individual fee rate to be lower than your ancestor set fee rate. This is usually not not easy to, to create, but it makes it fairly difficult to to decide whether or not transactions should be included right now or not, uh, because you can sort of increase your um, increase the overall ancestor set fee rate by adding two ancestor sets together that individually would have a lower fee rate. And um, yeah, so if you want to evaluate all of these situations. Uh, conclusively you you spend more computation time and it's just faster to opt well even if you're 
attaching yourself to, to multiple sets of transactions and increasing the overall quality of the package that way, we're just not going to evaluate it that way because it takes more time and makes it more complicated. And uh, so we, we default to, you can't be better than your own fee rate. Last question from the Stack Exchange has to do with multi-path payments, which is a technique for splitting higher value, higher value HTLCs into many lower value HTLCs that may be more likely to succeed when you route them through the network. And the question is, how does Lightning multi-part payments protocol define the amounts per part? So when you're doing this splitting, does is there some sort of mandate in, in this protocol that says you should use a certain size part or a certain algorithm to determine what those size parts should be? And Rene Picard pointed out that there is no protocol specified or mandated part size or algorithm for picking those sizes. And he also points to a bunch of research, a lot of which was driven um, by his own research on the topic into payment splitting research, which I don't feel like I could try to summarize uh, in this discussion. But if you are curious, please check out that that answer from Rene and, and review some of the literature on that. Yeah, maybe just one comment here. Yeah, Rene has uh, written, of course, what has become known as Pickard payments, uh, which indicates, um, or he has found a optimal solution to the flow problem there uh, on how you should route payments and how you should attempt to route payments. And um, so he he's exactly the right person to answer that. And my understanding is that it's not the optimal solution to split into equal parts. And uh, yeah, other than that, I will uh, join Mike in asking you to read the source material if you want to understand all the details. Next section of the newsletter covers releases and release candidates of which we have one, and we have a representative from the BTC pay server team to give us the highlights of this release. So maybe Pavlenix, you, you want to introduce yourself, maybe give a quick summary of BTC pay server for people, and then uh, a couple highlights from this 1.10.3 release. Yes, sure. Um, thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys can hear me well. Um, so yeah, I'm Pavlenix. I've been working in Bitcoin open source for six years now. Um, I've been mostly involved in BTC Pay Server as a well, janitor or a PM, however you prefer. Um, and I've also been involved with Stratum V2 recently and a bunch of other projects. But let's say BTC Pay and Stratum V2 are my focus uh, these days. Um, BTC Pay Server. So uh, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, just an open source, self-hosted and free payment processor for anybody to use to accept Bitcoin payments without fees, without intermediary, on your own terms. Um, and I think it's, it's also a very important infrastructure project in, uh, in Bitcoin. A lot of people build on top of BTC Pay. We have a lot of projects built on top of it uh, by using our stack or just using our API. So that's, uh, I guess, the short um, description of it. If anybody here does not know what BTC Pay is, you can go to btcpayserver.org on our website and read uh, more about it or just send me a DM. I'm happy to, to answer any questions that you may have. And in terms of our releases, uh, so the, this specific one that we released uh, two days ago is 1.10.3. 
Unfortunately, it's a minor release, uh, which means a lot of uh, boring work uh, for, for, for and a lot of uh, fixes and bug fixes. But what may be interesting um, to, to hear is how we came up with this release. So I'll, I'll tell you a, a very quick story. So the team was in Prague for BTC Prague conference. Uh, we had a boot there, and uh, a lot of people approached us with feature requests and <laughs> simply to complain, because as an open source project, we don't really keep a track of users. We don't know how to use BTC-based server or what problems they have. So people just uh, kept appearing at our boot and just reported bugs. So then we uh, realized that all of us uh, needed to have uh, notes, and then we took a bunch of notes. Then once we were back from Prague, we tried to consolidate all that uh, overwhelming feedback from people. but uh, then we started organizing it. Let's um, let's uh, try to fix things first before ship uh, new features. So, and that also I think shows the direction in which BTC based server is slowly grow, uh, going. Uh, we are maturing. We want to have core software which is very stable, very high performance, flexible. But then we also want to have let's say plugin ecosystems so that people can build features on their own uh, in a way similar to to what WordPress maybe is doing, even though some people may not like that model. Um, for us, it, it's, it's been uh, quite successful, I guess. Um, so yeah, this particular one, uh, well, you can see just by reading through to, uh, through the release notes that we were heavily focused on fixing point of sale bugs. Uh, main reason for this is that we had a um, person in Prague accepting Bitcoin payments in uh, Parallel Nepolis, uh, which is like, uh, co-working space for uh, Bitcoiners, well, maybe maybe also crypto people. But they had like, for, I mean, that, for that particular part of uh, time, like seven days, they had over 3,000 transactions on BTC based or point of sale. So obviously, they had a lot of feedback. And for us, it was very interesting. I was like always peeking around their shoulders, seeing how they use software, and then we identified a bunch of things. So most of those uh, bug fixes are actually around improving the point of sale experience, fixing the NFC payments. And then we have like a couple of others like crowdfunding and few, few, a few others. But I don't think that's like very uh, important uh, for, for people or interesting to, to listen. Uh, but you can go to our blog to read about our 1.10.0 release. I think you guys uh, linked it um, already. And um, you can see some of the highlight features, I, I guess, there. But yeah, I will not uh, bug you too much about BTC-based server. I just want to say thank you for always including all of our releases, even though when they are maybe boring. I uh, really appreciate uh, uh, you guys' work you do and um, yeah, also how correctly you always report on the work we are doing, which means that you're doing uh, quite a lot of research to be able to, to convey all, all of the things that we are shipping. So thank you for that. Thank you for those kind words and, and thanks for jumping on uh, last minute within just a few minutes of us. <laughs> Starting this space is, uh, I was hoping somebody from BTC Pay could join, and you jumped on and you, you made it through uh, an hour and a half to get to your segment. So, thank you. Next section of the newsletter is notable code and documentation changes. The first one that we have here, uh, actually a slew of Lightning-related PRs, but the first one is to Core Lightning 6303 which has a new command to set some config parameters dynamically, um, presumably without having to restart. Um, this is somewhat related to another PR we covered about CLN configuration recently in newsletter 255 that helped with configuration specifically for passing configuration options to plugins when they are restarted. Um, and I know that in that PR, they were setting the context for a wider 
sort of um, rework of their configuration setup. So this is this builds on that. Merch, any thoughts? Isn't it funny how, for some reason, all of these lightning people were looking to have all their decks in a row recently? <laughs> Maybe there was there is there some sort of event going on? Man, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next PR is to the Eclair repository, 2701, which now records the timestamps of when an offered HTLC is received and when it is settled. And so this allows tracking of how long those HTLCs are pending, at least from that node's perspective. And that could be uh, a longer pending HTLC may be an indication that there is a channel jamming attack in progress. And also having that information, uh, those t those timestamps may also contribute to mechanisms which could help mitigate such channel jamming attacks. Merch? Yeah, we've we've had uh, talked a little bit about uh, different types of jamming and mitigations in the past few months. So, just as a reminder, um, the researchers working on this topic generally uh, distinguish between slow jamming and fast jamming. Where fast jamming just means that you you do a barrage of many payments in order to uh, lock up all of the slots on a channel. Where Whereas slow jamming is a way of just keeping a multi-hop payment open by on the receiver end, not pulling in the payment for a long time. And uh, especially with the recent um, block space demand spike, some of the Lightning implementations have been increasing their uh, CLTV deltas, as in the time that each hop reserves on being able to close their HTLC out on chain in case that a payment doesn't go through or peer disappears. Sorry, just the latter, not the former. And um, so the, uh, um, I think that jamming is is moving forward. We we have the. Uh, the idea of having advanced payments in order to to pay for uh, every hop, uh, to pay a minuscule amount of satoshis to every hop for the opportunity cost of keeping an HTLC open. And on the other hand, we're talking about local reputation of your own peers that if you work together with peers a lot and forward payments for them a lot, you may start to endorse payments that they have endorsed as coming from a good source as a means to, to protect at least half of your channel capacity and uh, channel slots against slow jamming attacks. And uh, yeah, that that's just a short, small rundown on jamming again. Next PR is Eclair 2696, which allows users of Eclair to now specify fee prioritization using keywords like slow, medium, or fast, instead of the previous option, which was specifying fee prioritization using a numbered block target of when the user would want the transaction confirmed. And this fee prioritization applies for the funding and closing transactions and you can configure those uh, separately. The default setting for both, I believe, is medium for both the funding and closing, but you can configure different values for the funding versus the clo closing. 
And I took away from this PR that it, it's it's not uh, adding additional options uh, per se, but they're trying to get away from block targets and um, not, they're not just simply adding additional ways to provide the fee prioritization. I, I think that's a good thing. I think that the expression of um, trying to express the urgency of your transaction in a block target is inherently a weird UX. Um, people either want to be in the next block or in the ne second next block. And after that, I think expressing it as a uh, count of blocks uh, seems odd because that's not how people think about transactions. People want to have their transaction go through, through, go through before noon or by next morning or by the end of the week or something like that. And expressing it as slow, medium, fast uh, is just a better way of, of going there. Next PR is to LND 7710, uh, storing HTLC extra TLVs in onion blob var bytes. And so TLV is type length value record. And this allows spec upgrades to transmit extra fields in this TLV stream. And some uses for that extra data may be uh, route blinding, um, and it can also be used for channel jamming countermeasures. And we also mentioned in the newsletter right up that there could be uh, other ideas for future features. And looking into the PR, one one way, an, another way this extra data could be used was for keeping track of local reputation information about a forwarded HTLC. Merch, any thoughts on this PR? All right, LDK twenty three sixty eight allows accepting new channels created by a peer that use anchor outputs. Um, but this does require uh, the controlling program or individual to deliberately choose manually uh, which to accept for each of these new channels. So LDK, uh, it, as a library, isn't aware of what non-lightning UTXOs the user's wallet controls behind the scenes. So. Uh, it uses this prompt to give whatever program is controlling the the wallet and potentially LDK a chance to verify that it has the necessary UTXOs with sufficient value that could be required to properly settle an anchor channel on chain. Do you want to add their anchor outputs a little bit, or? Sure. Yeah, I know there's a there's a couple of PRs here related to anchor outputs for LDK. Right. So uh, my understanding from yesterday's BitDevs is that um, anchor outputs are moving forward quite a bit. And the um, so anchor outputs help, of course, uh, or let me take another step back. One of the issues that Lightning channels have is that the commitment transaction gets updated every time there is a state change of the channel. State changes happen either when a payment goes through the channel, both when the HTLC is created and the HTLC is removed, or when one of the two peers just starts talking to their counterparty and says, hey, I feel like the fee rates changed a lot, or I want to announce a new flag, or uh, generally want to change the features or parameters of the channel, then they would also re-announce the channel. However, if, for example, at that point, one of the channel partners is not present, or that hasn't happened in a long time, it is very easy for the commitment transactions to have committed to fees 
that or fee rates rather that are not uh, current and especially with the fee spike we fee rate spike we saw a while back a bunch of channels were just stuck at having commitment transactions with fee rates that were very low and underestimated and by themselves the commitment transactions were not competitive to be included in in blocks and vice versa after you come down from a fee spike like that the fee rate may be set way too high and when you do publish a commitment transaction for a channel where the peer disappeared you might be overpaying by magnitude so anchor outputs generally allow you to move that uh, decision on what fee rate you might want to use to the time at which the commitment transaction is published the commitment transaction now only has to meet the minimum dynamic mempool fee rate because we still need to be able to first submit the commitment transaction into mempools in order to be able to cpfp it but then after that the anchor output is um, available for you to attach a CPFP and to bring more fees in order to bump the parent transaction, the commitment transaction, the actual unilateral uh, channel close that you want to perform, and your new transaction that bumps it. And uh, so currently, anchor outputs have there, there's two anchor outputs on each transaction, one for each party. And uh, they have gone to a length to um, make these commitment outputs, sorry, anchor outputs have sufficient amounts that they will be cleaned up later. And I think they did that by making the commitment transaction have a check sequence verified time lock. So uh, either party can claim them after the commitment transaction is settled on the chain if they hadn't used it for bumping yet. And then after a few blocks, it becomes anyone can spend and people can just go and clean up those those anchor outputs and i think they are at 330 sets or something so it should be um economical to to clean them up at low fee rates later um i we had a speaker request or something or did i miss that i, I might have missed it i didn't see it uh okay anyway that that was just a little rundown on anchor outputs or uh, maybe one more sentence. Uh, in the long term, of course, we would hope to uh, transition to the V3 transactions and ephemeral anchors, which further improves the situation because now you only have to have a single output on it. The ephemeral anchor is um, anyone can spend but has no value itself, and we force people uh, to, they can only publish a transaction with an ephemeral anchor if the ephemeral an anchor is spent in the same package. Uh, that's at least the concept right now. Of course, this is all work in progress. And that would both make the transaction, the commitment transaction smaller, would fully move the, the funding of the commitment transaction to the time when it is published. And uh, ephemeral anchors can be tiny because they have an true output which is only nine bytes so yeah lots of movement in that area Oflo, did you have a question yeah i i had just i'd missed it when i'd missed uh, the last thing can you um explain um the the anchor again what does that mean again uh sorry in in the interest of time i think you can listen to the episode later yeah thank you well merch just gave a great overview of anchor outputs and 
that was in relation to LDK 2368. Um, and there's also the LDK 2367, which makes anchor channels accessible to regular consumers of the API. This PR removes a config flag that was temporarily hiding uh, anchor-related API calls um, from the public API, and so they, they've removed that. So it, that's accessible now to anybody using LDK who wants to do anchor channels. Oh, one thing that I missed was, um, especially with the, the spec summit uh, currently, I think that um, the different implementations have been coordinating on anchor outputs, and there is at least two, I think, that have finished implementations now, and that's... Um, so I, I think we're moving to an anchor output-based uh, commitment transaction system more broadly now. It's it's starting to get adopted uh, from the top of my head. I'm not really that plugged into Lightning. Another LDK PR, 2319, which allows a peer to create an HTLC that commits to paying less than the amount the original spender said should be paid allowing the peer to keep the difference for itself as an extra fee. Merch, why would we allow such a thing? Well, you know, if the last hop, the actual recipient, is good at leaving a little bit of the funds with the previous hop without the sender needing to know about that, you can do fun stuff like open a channel from an... Sorry, like, I think it's useful in the context of uh, loops... Uh, submarine swaps where you are trying to pay the service provider a fee and uh, since it's strictly opt-in if the last hop forwards to little and uh, the recipient says well that doesn't ma match my invoice uh, they can just decline it and the last hop fails at at claiming those funds, but if the last hop and the recipient agree, they can have an out-of-band agreement on some extra fees going to the last hop uh, that weren't present in the Onion messages because those are constructed by the sender, of course, and they don't necessarily know that they're under the hood paying both the last hop and the recipient. So, yeah, I think I think it's a building block for making stuff like fees for submarine swaps and uh, splices and loop in and loop out and dual funding and all of those things uh, easier to do. Um, and it sort of is an alternative approach to the proposal of Thomas Fuglin that we talked about last week, where he suggested that there may be two payments specified in a single invoice. I think that you can achieve, in some use cases, a similar thing by just letting the last hop collect a little bit of the money intended for the recipient. And then I think another use case that I'm not sure you mentioned that we pointed out in the newsletter was the, the creation of just-in-time channels, JIT channels. Um, and so there's there's another use case there. Oh yeah, that was that that was the thing I was thinking of or was supposed to think of. Next PR is LDK twenty one twenty, which adds support for finding a route to a receiver who is using blinded paths. And um uh and, and noted in the PR this is blinded paths provided in both twelve invoices. And so blinded paths um, also has a few other names like rendezvous routing that we've used in the past. And 
that's a technique to allow a Lightning node to send a payment to a node that is unannounced without learning where that node is in the LN network topology. Um, and so now that that is now also supported by LDK. So LDK is really cramming here. Merch? Yeah, I was I was gonna ask whether we should give an overview uh, into that one too. But are we running out of time? We're almost at two hours. I think we could pro probably uh, skip it this go around. All right. Yeah, I think you got the the gist of it anyway. LDK twenty eighty nine. It adds event handler that makes it easy for wallets to fee bump any HTLCs that need to be settled on chain. Quote from the PR, without having to worry about all the little details to do so. Um, another piece that I saw from the PR discussion was, quote, while the event handler should in most cases produce valid transactions, assuming the provided confirmed UTXOs are valid, it may not produce reliable transactions due to not satisfying certain RBF mempool policy requirements. And also noted related to that um, potentially invalid transaction that while we may consider implementing this in the future, we chose to go with a simpler initial version. Merch, did you get a chance to look at this one? Unfortunately, I'm unfamiliar. Okay. Next PR is also to LDK 2077, which is essentially a, a refactor PR that refactors a bunch of code that makes it easier to later add support for dual funded channels, which is exciting. I don't have any comments from the PR on that one. Merch, anything there? Yeah. So I don't know how familiar people are, but there are some interesting dynamics around uh, the person or the user that opened the channel versus the counterparty in who pays for fees. And um, so I I think that, um, so in one side where this expresses is that when uh, the two participants disagree on the fee rates that commitment transactions have, um, they have slightly different interests because uh, some of that is always paid by one side. And uh, well, from what I understand, Duncan is just moving here to uh, more clearly track what type of channel it is. Is this one where we opened the, the transaction or is it one where the other party opened it? And that makes it easier to sort of have the right code routines to to negotiate and to keep track of stuff. And yeah, in light of dual funding to maybe have a separate category for that as well. Last PR here is to LibSecP repository. 1129, implementing alligator swift technique. Merch, you did the write-up for this. I think you'd be better suited to give a summary of what is alligator swift and how, how it fits into some broader initiatives. Yeah, sure. Um, so alligator swift is a technique of essentially encoding a public key, an ECDSA public key, in a um, 64 byte value that is indistinguishable from random data. And 
so one of the things on how nodes on the well bitcoin nodes on the network are very easy to fingerprint because they send bitcoin traffic and all traffic is currently sent in the clear on the network uh, there has been a long time initiative in trying to encrypt all traffic on the bitcoin network this is currently moving forward in form of bit 324 the v2 um, peer-to-peer protocol uh, in which all um, traffic will be encrypted. This still means that it's probably fairly easy for ISPs and uh, other nodes along the route in the internet to tell that people are participating in Bitcoin traffic. But because like, well, a node was found and suddenly the traffic of that uh, kind spikes and so forth. But in the long term, not only do we want to encrypt all the traffic, but there is the thought of allowing nodes to authenticate with each other. And uh, Alligator Swift is here used to... Um, Actually, I think I'm I'm jumping ahead too far. Uh, Alligator Swift is used to establish the the handshake for the uh, BIP three twenty four P two P messaging, and uh, instead of like telling at the handshake, hey, here's my pub key that I want to use to establish an encrypted session with an ECDSA uh, ECDH, uh, we we send just 64 bytes of random looking data and it becomes indistinguishable. Um, sorry, I'm, did I get everything? Am I missing something big? No, that's great. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's pretty cool uh, that this got merged. Obviously, it's another step in moving forward with BIP 324. Um, and it's pretty cool that, that they've done this in a way that it, it looks totally random to to an onlooker um so pretty impressive technology yeah do let me jump a little bit ahead though so once we have all traffic encrypted we would like to authenticate each connection or at least pretend to authenticate each connection to make it really hard to man in the middle attack and while it's hard to to um show or to to um, to pretend that we're not Bitcoin traffic, I think it will be fairly easy for other protocols to pretend that they are Bitcoin traffic. And this could, for example, help other peer-to-peer -peer networks to hide traffic that looks like Bitcoin traffic. And it will make it easier uh, to, for example, if you have a light client that you want to be sure is talking to your own full node, to authenticate that you're talking to your full node and to authenticate from full node's perspective that the light client is the one that you're talking to. Uh, so um, there is a very nifty cutting edge cryptography research paper coming out uh, at some point that uh, describes this technique that we're working on. I think it's been described, a counterparty has been described before, um, but yeah, there, there's some really cool stuff that's just moving on a more year-to-year -year scale that's going on and hopefully coming out, well, this decade. <laughs> and if you're curious a bit about this authentication that Merch mentioned, we discussed it a little bit in our newsletter 255 recap 
in our discussion with Matthew Zipkin, I think it was in the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club section where we were talking about one of his PRs and, and brought this topic up. So if you're curious, you can jump to that section of that podcast and, and listen further if you're curious what the use cases might be there. Rich? I think I said the wrong word. I'm talking about countersign, and we do have an optic topics page for countersign. So if you are interested in uh, the mechanism that we that is being proposed for how we will do authentication on the encrypted V2P2P transport protocol, uh, that would be the page that you're looking for. Any announcements before we wrap up, Merch? Yeah, I have to fill my own bags again. We had a lot of lightning people in our office this week. We sat down with Rusty for the Chaincode podcast. And also we sat down, um, yeah, with Rusty, we talked more about like what are all the important things that lightning developers are working on. And uh, the other one is we sat down with L and Oliver from L&D to talk about the uh, situation with simple taproot channels where funded outputs, sorry, funding outputs for taproot, nah, Jesus, lightning channels will hopefully soon be moving towards using taproot outputs as the funding outputs. And there's a lot of discussion still around the exact details of that. Uh, as we're speaking, the lightning summit is discussing this and other topics for the spec. And uh, we we picked the brain of L and Ollie a little bit on that. And those episodes of the Chaincode podcast will be coming out sometime in the next couple of weeks. And I think they'll be really cool. Excellent. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Chaincode podcast is a great podcast. So if, you, if you're a listener of our Optic Recap podcast, you would definitely find value in those discussions. So I encourage you to, to subscribe to that feed as well. Well, thanks to my co-host, Merch, for a great marathon two hours this week. Um, we, we had some great guests. Thank you to Gloria, Robin, uh, Dave for jumping in, Oflo for some questions, and um, also for Pavlenix for representing BTC Pay. And we'll see you all next week. Cheers. And uh, Bitcoin, Seco, and uh, yeah, thanks. It was a great episode. Hear you soon.